I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant U, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing. We're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. You know, looking at the soil and understanding what's happening with the soil. If you get the soil in balance and the soil is healthy and you put healthy plants into that, we have a saying, healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people. Mm -hmm. And that's in its simplest form, but that's really in a nutshell what it's really all about. Season three of the Plant Strong Podcast explores those Galileo moments where you seek to understand the real truth around your health and dare to see the world through a different lens. This season, we honor those courageous seekers who are paving the way for you and me. So grab your telescope, point it towards your future, and let's get Plant Strong together. If you've been following us for a while, you know that I'm a big believer in eating plants, plain and simple. I have never put a huge emphasis on organic versus conventional, and I've never recommended that you shop in the fancy stores in order to get your produce. The only thing that I really focus on is urging people to crowd out all the animal products, processed oils, and the junk foods and to really fill up your plates with as many whole, unprocessed, plant-based foods as possible. Well, this past Thanksgiving, my mother sent each of her kids the most incredible box of Thanksgiving produce I have ever experienced in my life. No joke. You know that I have dedicated more than 30 plus years to eating plants, and I take a a lot of joy in discovering quality produce, but this box blew my mind. The leafy greens, the variety of tubers, um, the, the beets, the carrots, all the different colors. I've never seen anything like this. And remember, I worked at Whole Foods Market Global Headquarters for over 10 years. So I've seen a lot of quality produce in my day. And in addition, the microgreens in this box, and to be honest, I've never been a huge fan of microgreens. I thought they were just some trendy spa food that could never compete with the heft of some of my go-tos like Swiss chard, collards, and kale. But these microgreens were over-the-top amazing uh, on a lot of different levels, and I've learned a lot <laughs> about microgreens. But I just had to find out more about this little farm who sent me this box of vegetables. Well, they're called the Chef's Garden. And get this, on their pastoral property is a state-of-the-art chef-led research kitchen called 
the Culinary Vegetable Institute. And as it turns out, it's not a little farm. It's in fact one of the world's best kept secrets when it comes to specialty produce. And it's just outside Cleveland, Ohio. Who would have thought? And it's only because of COVID, as you're going to learn, that they're now becoming known to the rest of us. I flew to the farm last week so I could see this operation firsthand and meet the incredible family and team behind these vegetables. Side note here, if you're listening to this podcast, I would encourage you to hop over to YouTube because the footage of this visit will blow your mind. I was able to walk the grow houses and marvel at the rows and rows of purple kale. I learned about their cover crops and what it means to really nurture healthy soil. I tasted dozens of microgreens and fresh herbs and obscure root vegetables like Jerusalem artichokes and parsnips. I met their lead researcher who is setting the standard for, get this, measuring the levels of nitrates in vegetables to determine what growing conditions impact those nitrates. And as we know, vegetables high in nitrates lead to greater nitric oxide production, which means our endothelial cells are going to sing. And just for you, our audience, they are eagerly exploring this new frontier. So as a result of this visit, I am beyond excited to share that we have partnered with the Chef's Garden to create an extra special at-home experience for all of you to enjoy this upcoming Valentine's Day. I want you to have the opportunity, like I did, to taste these best-in-class magical vegetables, all hand-picked and shipped straight to your door. We have a select number of boxes that are available for this shared culinary adventure, and as podcast listeners, you are the first to know. Sign up for our Plant Strong Mystery Valentine's Dinner, and we promise to surprise and delight you with a special four-course at-home culinary cooking experience. You'll receive a box brimming with the most premium produce from Chef's Garden, and paired with just a few items that you already have in your pantry, you're going to learn, as I did, to prepare and enjoy a special holiday dinner for two. Visit planstrong.com backslash garden for more details and to grab your spot in this fun event. So right now, I am pleased to introduce you to Farmer Lee Jones and his brother Bob Jones of the Chef's Garden and the Culinary Vegetable Institute. Join me in learning how the world's finest produce is grown, and my bet is you're going to fall in love with his family and their legacy just like I did. Hello. <laughs> it is an honor to have you on the farm here at the Chef's Garden. I yeah. mean, after all this time and here you are. Yeah, no, it's really exciting for us. Well, it's just as exciting for me to be here. Um, how do you like to be referred to? Is it Farmer Lee Jones? Is it Lee Jones? You can call me anything but late for dinner. Okay. <laughs> Farmer Lee Jones, Lee Jones, Farmer. Okay. Really, any of it works. Tell me a little bit about the history of this, this farm and, and, and your father and what he instilled in you guys. Well, you have to go to the region. Um, okay. I mean, this is an amazing microclimate. It's some of the richest sandy loam in the world. Uh, we're 2.9 miles inland from Lake Erie, and Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes. Consequently, it's the warmest. Mm. In fact, this area was huge in grapes before even Napa Valley. It was huge uh, uh, wine grape production. But European settlers recognized this as a great growing area, and they came in. And, and if you think about having this amazing microclimate with some of the richest sandy loam in the world, um, and then the proximity of Cleveland, an hour away, Columbus, two hours away, Toledo, an hour away, Detroit, an hour and a half, Pittsburgh, three and a half, Cincinnati, four hours away. You've got this amazing microclimate with, as near as we can figure, the largest concentration of vegetable growers of any county in the world. 
Now you can say, wait a minute, California, you've got from the north to the south to the east to the west, it's 100% agriculture. But it's also owned by 100 growers that each have 30,000 acres. Mm. These were what today we would call an artisan grower, mm -hmm. but they were small, what they called truck farms. And they would grow their vegetables and they would harvest those and they would take them into farmers markets, which are entirely different farmers markets than what we know of today, where we go at eight o'clock in the morning or seven o'clock if we're ambitious on a Saturday morning or a Wednesday. These were farmers markets where you met, went in and you met the grocery store buyers because there were just as many grocery stores as you could imagine mm -hmm. back in the day. I mean, go back to your hometown Think yeah. of the family-owned grocery stores that existed back when you and I were kids, and they don't exist anymore. It's really the Walmart syndrome yeah. 50 years later, but or earlier. And they would go in, and each one of those family-owned grocery stores would have their own buyer. And so the farmers would take their product in, and those buyers would buy for those individual grocery stores. Unfortunately, a lot of things kind of took place to make that happen, but we... We kind of lost our way mm -hmm. and lost the connection with where food comes from. But it's really an amazing microclimate. And my dad, um, with 330 vegetable growers here, went to work for one of the most progressive growers, and his name was Charles Nichols. Do you Literally, know when that was? What, what that, would have been in the, that would have been in the mid-50s. Uh -huh, uh -huh. um, and dad was 14 years old at the time. And Mr. Nichols kind of recognized the chains like, do you remember old, uh, the Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, A&P? Sure, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yep, yep. Kroger, Big Bear, Pick and Pay, places like that. And Mr. Nichols recognized the need to be able to take what these small growers were doing and bring it together and he invested in cooling, packing, uh, palletization, hydrocooling. And so they worked cooperatively together and, and were able to compete with places that could do it on a larger scale in bigger volumes and warmer climates like Arizona, Florida, Georgia, um, mm -hmm. California, Mexico. Um, and so dad actually took that farm over, ramp up like 15 to 20 years. Mr. Nichols had no children that wanted to take over the farm and my dad bought the farm from him. And uh, one by one, those small family farms were continuing to go out of business. And my dad continued to expand his acreage and by the time I was 15 or 16 years old, we were farming uh, about 1,200 acres of fresh market vegetable. And you have to really kind of think about the way that they farmed. We were farming commercially. We were farming chemically. Um, if you follow the money, the universities are all financially in trouble. And so they're looking for money. Who's making the money? Pharmaceutical companies and the chemical companies. Mm -hmm. So they give the grants to the universities and say, hey, we'd like to give you a $20 million check to do research to help the farmers. And uh, of course, there were a few strings attached along the way. Yeah. We want you to do research to help the farmers, but it also needs to use these chemicals to be able to grow. And of course, that disconnect continued to happen more and more, and we farmed that way. Uh, late 70s, early 80s, I don't know whether you remember, but interest rates at 21%. When you, when, let me back up for a yeah, second. Yeah, sure. When you say that we farm that way, meaning you were using those chemicals and stuff like that? We were. Okay. That was the way the university was teaching. Okay. Here's how you increase your yields. How, here's how you manage weeds and pests is through chemical usage to and control those. And stuff like that? That's right. That's right. And, you know, and it was a way to be able to expand volume and production. And you look at the competitive nature, um, a lot of things in the United States we couldn't compete on on a global marketplace, but the one thing we could was in agriculture. We could compete in a global marketplace. I mean, the reality is, is that we produce food in America cheaper than any other country in the world as it relates to our income. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, un the other side of that is, is that we also have the highest health care in the world. Yeah, isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? Yeah. So yeah. by losing, you know, eventually interest rates at 21%, we had an amazing, amazingly devastating hailstorm that completely and totally wiped out all the crops. And when I was 19 years old, I stood shoulder to shoulder with my mom and dad, my brother and sister, all of our neighbors, all of our competitors, everybody there that was there to celebrate our failure. And they auctioned every single thing that we owned off right down to my mother's car and our house. And uh, we crawled away. 
Where'd you crawl to? Well, down the road, six acres and started over. Um, but you know, as rough as that was, it gave us an opportunity to rethink what we were doing. And my dad really started looking back at agricultural books 100 years ago even, 125 years ago, and thinking about and looking at the way that they were farming, pre-chemical, pre pre-synthetic fertilizer, rotating, rebuilding soil naturally through cover crops, um, rather than using, I mean, the chemicals weren't even invented at that point. And it was building that soil up and creating a healthy plant so it would defend against the insect or the disease in the first place. Yep. And so it really started us down a journey in the early 80s, looking at growing in a way that resonated maybe more with dad than with us because what he was reading about and what we started researching was it had existed. It's just that we had lost something in a generation and we had abandoned those principles. So in many ways, when you come to our farm, you'll see technology that is very advanced, but yet you'll also see part of the farm going back. And, and one of our goals is to get as good as our grandparents were. My dad has a saying that the only thing that we're trying to do is get as good as the farmers were 100 years ago. Yeah. And we're still trying to do that. So it's, it's a marriage, really, of, it really is, yeah. of, of kind of the new technology. And we'll be talking about that with your brother yes. here a little yeah. bit. And then going back to the old farm practices before the uh, maybe using the just the wonderful diversity that's there just um, in nature. That's right. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so you guys crawled back, you started over, and um, like, where are you today? You know, it's certainly not a rags to riches story, and that's not at all what I'm trying to create or to present to you. Um, it, it gave us an opportunity, th you know, through a devastation, through a, a life change, literally a life changing time and place. It allowed us to redirect and to refocus. And it allowed us to, to look at that plant and to think about it in a more whole, holistic approach um, to really farming the right way. Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways, there's so many synergies and symbiotic relationships between your messaging and what we're trying to do. And that's, I mean, part of the reason why we're just so excited to, to form a relationship with you folks. But, um, you know, looking at the soil and understanding what's happening with the soil. If you get the soil in balance and the soil is healthy and you put healthy plants into that, we have a saying, healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people. Mm -hmm. And that's in its simplest form, but that's really in a nutshell what it's really all about. So you, you guys picked yourselves up, you got back in there. Um, who, who were some of your first customers and how did you build the business up? You know, we started back at farmer's markets because it was the only place that we knew to start over. But at that farmer's market, we met a, uh, a woman. Her name was Iris Balin. She was a chef. She had trained over in Europe with some of the best over in Europe. And we didn't know anything about chefs. And she came to the farmer's market, and I met her. She had a white coat on. And, and we just, we had no clue about the chef world. Yeah. And she said, you know, I'm looking for product with flavor. I'm looking for product grown without chemical. I'm looking for a product grown the right way. And she said, I believe that if you would go down that path, there would be enough chefs that would support you. Mm. And we were desperate for a way to be able to survive in agriculture. And, and we latched onto her and we wouldn't let go. And we realized that she was a whole lot smarter than we were. Right. And we finally come winter time when we got through that season, we said, look, can we come in and sit down and talk with you? And she was actually a chef for a brokerage firm uh, in downtown Cleveland. We loaded in a pickup truck and Bob and my dad and I and we drove down there and we got there and of course the brokerage firm was closed on Saturday and there was this big huge long legal table if you will. And yeah. It was a fancy fancy place and she had that table covered. I bet you there was 50 books <laughs> open to different with earmarks on them and just, she was so excited that she found somebody that was willing to listen to what she was saying. Mm. And she wanted products grown that she had experienced in Europe, and she wanted them grown here. 
flavor was the most important thing to her and growing them without the chemical, doing it the right way. And so she, then she introduced us to another chef and then another chef. And it really started in the Cleveland area proper. But then we read about a, a, a famous chef coming from France, uh, Jean-Louis Paladin. He came to the Watergate Hotel in DC. Mm. And he was, there was a lot of news and a lot of uh, uh, storylines written about him and we reached out to him. And you know, he was pretty gregarious. Uh, and he was outspoken and he was not at all bashful. As gregarious as you? I couldn't hold a candle <laughs> to him. <laughs> and he, his message was, if you want to grow for me, you must figure out the right way to grow. The food in America is shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's pretty gregarious, right? Yes, yeah. And you know, and a lot of people are like, who the heck is this guy coming into the USA telling us that our stuff is not any good? Because at that point, if you look at what was happening in American agriculture, we're growing so much volume of food. We're competing on a global marketplace, producing millions and millions of tons of product. Mm -hmm. And it was driving the economic engine in the United States. And here's this guy coming in from France telling us that our food isn't any good. Had we been smart enough to listen to him as a country in the United States back in the 70s, maybe, maybe we could have saved some of this mess that we find ourselves in today. Right. And so, and, so, uh, and so then that led to more chefs and more chefs and more chefs. And then weren't you, how, how, did, how did it get to be that the chef's garden was doing, I'll just throw out a number, 75% of your business to uh, restaurants? Oh my gosh, it was 100%. Oh. Uh, we went to, um, you know, we, we moved to this restaurant world and it became 100% of our world for the last 35 years. We've been working, we've been very, very, very fortunate to get to work with Michelin-starred restaurants, uh, Ritz Carlton's, Four Seasons, St. Regis's, Mandarin Orientals. Disney. Disney. I mean, just the best of the best. And working, with, and we've just been so honored to be able to be a small part of some really amazing teams over the last 35 years. Unfortunately. So you've been working with them for 35 years? 35 so years. Wow, okay. And so, I'm sorry, and so no. what happened? So unfortunately, we had this thing called COVID. Yep, heard of it. Kind of crept up on all of us. <laughs> yeah. And uh, needless to say, the restaurant world has has taken a little bit of a breather. Taken a little bit of a hit. Yeah. They will return. They will recover. We are survivors here. All of us in this country, we figure out a way to get things done. But it's a it's a difficult time for the restaurants and the restaurant servers and the restaurant owners and all of those folks. And there's a ripple down effect and it's really had a devastating effect on the farm. Yeah. We had had a notion of being able to get our product to the end users. We'd had those requests, but we just frankly hadn't had the time to be able to devote to, to it. Well, needless to say, we had a little time available. So now you do. And so we opened it up to individuals and we shipped from our farm direct to individuals all over the country. And we kind of pivoted in a hurry. Yep. Well, I know that I got a big box for Christmas. Right. Yeah. Um, and actually, two, two big boxes. And it was the most extraordinary produce I have ever experienced and tasted in my life. And, and, and you guys do some really phenomenal things here that, um, that you know, I, I'd like to know, like, how is it that you guys, I mean, how many varieties of, of kale are we are we looking at here for example well, we're looking at about six different varieties i mean yeah. there's so many different ways that we could answer that question i mean color is health yeah. we know eat the rainbow but you know the more varieties within the kale, we know that kale is something that's really really good for us i think you take it several steps further in how it's grown but taking it back to that soil fundamentally how do we take care of the soil to be able to grow the kale but having the variety and the diversity of kale and then picking those at different sizes uh, offers us a lot of different ways to be able to use it. We tend to think kind of one dimensionally about kale. If we go back to my grandmother, you know, you got kale and you boiled it down for half a day. Um, this kale, it doesn't even need to be cooked, yes. especially if you can pick these nice young inner tender leaves and create a mescaline with kales. Yeah. You can eat a kale salad. And anytime we can consume this stuff without cooking it, we know that we hold more of the nutrients. Maybe you could create a little kale mescaline salad for me. 
I would love that. Yeah. Let's do that. I think we should create it together. Let's do that. Let's per do it. Perfect. Now, um, <laughs> how many different varieties of sweet potato do you do you make here? You know, I don't have enough here. fingers to count that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I heard. Well, we work yeah. with Cornell University. Uh, Cornell has done some phenomenal work. You know, the varieties of food that we're seeing in grocery stores, and I'm generalizing, yeah. are varieties that had disease resistance, they had the ability to ship 3,000 miles, and they yielded off the charts. None of these varieties of sweet potatoes that we're talking about are going to yield like the varieties you're going to find in the store. Mm -hmm. But I would defy you to find a sweet potato that tasted anywhere near as good as these. Cornell is trying to to revive or to to keep some of these varieties from going into complete, you know, um, what would be the right word, going into complete extinction. Extinction, yeah. And so we've done some some work with experiment. I think at one point we did trials on over a hundred varieties, and we pared it down to about ten or twelve now. But wow. our chef actually at the Culinary Vegetable Institute has served on several occasions the sweet potatoes as a dessert. Yeah. They're just that good. Yeah, oh, it's, a yeah. it's a, like a creme brulee. We sweet. have a variety called creme brulee, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I get excited about that. <laughs> yeah, well there's a lot of things I think that are special about this place. Um, and this is my first time. Right, visiting. I hope it's the first of many. I do, I do too, but I think, as you just alluded to, one of your special sauces is the diversity of your uh, of your team members absolutely and, and, and taking a tour of of the grounds and and meeting some of your team members they are so passionate and they love they love the work here and what they're doing and i think the mission that that you know your father started however many years ago i mean it's really phenomenal um you guys are making farming cool you are making it cool and hip and uh uh, and, and pretty and tasty and uh, nutritional oomph. <laughs> well, we're working at it, and uh, we think we've got a long ways to go. Yeah. We're, we're on a good path, and it's one of the blessings has been the team members here, but some of the amazing folks that we've gotten to meet along the way, and I just think that this is, you know, in the history of the farm, this is a special occasion to have you folks here, Rip, and... Uh, I just think that the symbiotic relationship that's going to occur from us working together and lots of exciting things on the horizon. You know, we had Ferran Adria here, and at the time that he was here, Charlie Trotter brought him in, and Ferran Adria at the time was a, a chef. As a chef, okay. he, was, he was the number one chef in the world uh, Say his at name the again? time. Ferran Adria. Where's he from? Uh, El Bulli in Madrid. Okay. He was the number one chef in the world when he was here, and he said, you know, We've explored every species of fish, of poultry, of pork, of beef that exists. You know, we've explored every one of them. But there are literally thousands mm. of plants to explore. And he said, it's the future. And that's what's so exciting about it is we are a plant-based, plant-forward future. It's, yep. it's inevitable for sustainability, for regenerative farming, for the future of society. And we're on the cusp of really making, seeing some significant changes in the way that we think about our food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what people are starting to realize more and more is that food is medicine. And the most powerful form of that medicine comes from plants. That's right. It doesn't, it doesn't come from, from animal products or animal byproducts. We want to go to the mother source where it all is created, and that's from plants. And you guys are doing things with plants that, I mean, this is like a, a dream world, right? It's like walking into a dream world. Every day. <laughs> every, every day. That's right. And I wish that, that everybody could, you know, step into this, this world here and experience it um, because it gives you such an appreciation for the, the, the time and the love and the science that, that it's gone into this. Um, and... It has allowed you to be where you are now, you know, what, since your father, I think you said in the 19, was it 1950 something, um, bought the farm from, who was it, Norton? Charlie Nichols. Charlie Nichols. Charlie Nichols. <laughs> Charlie Nichols. Yeah. Charlie Nichols.
I hope that you're enjoying getting to know the Jones family at the Chef's Garden. If you'd like to participate in our Valentine's Day mystery dinner for two, visit planstrong.com backslash garden to register today. This premium culinary experience is meant to be shared with someone you care a whole lot about. And to make sure that you all nail it, and I mean nail this dinner, we've got step-by-step, beautifully filmed instructions, followed by a live Q&A with the amazing chef, Jamie Simpson. You're going to learn techniques and methods you've never seen before that she'll be able to use on a daily basis going forward. I learned about half a dozen cooking maneuvers during the filming of this event that I absolutely love, love, love. Register today and you'll receive your box just ahead of Valentine's Day. Then we'll release the film on Saturday, February 13th and answer your questions so you have time to watch and then prepare this plant incredible meal. Visit plantstrong.com backslash garden today for all the details. So Bob, yes, met your, your brother just uh, a little earlier. Tell me, is, is he your older brother? Yes, by about three and a half years. Okay, and were you guys close growing up? Yeah, I would say so because we grew up working on the farm together. Um, so it, it was, we spent a lot of time together working on the farm um, with each other. We spent a lot of time working with my grandfather on mm-hmm. the farm. Uh, my dad was running a wholesale produce operation at that time. We didn't see a whole lot of him during the day. He worked 14, 15 hours a day. We saw him on Sunday morning at church. This is your father? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, we would go out to dinner after church and have a family meal. And then uh, he'd go back to work. We'd play. Yeah. And then Monday we'd start over. But it was just, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah. No, it's life on the farm. Yeah. What, what does the... Uh this farm mean to you? Oh my goodness, Uh, that's a great question. It um, certainly is a, it really is a family business. And when I say family, there is immediate family. And then there are, you've met some of the folks in your couple of days here that have been with us 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. Um, We have second generation and coming third generation families working with us on the farm. Um, Growing vegetables is all we know how to do. It's all we've ever done. What we really probably weren't totally aware of was that this is just a way to help people. Um, I heard a speaker talk one time about giving financial advice to business owners who wanted to do ministry work. They wanted to retire early and go do ministry work, uh, mission work. Mm. And, and something he said really resonated with me, and that is that owning a family business, there is no greater mission field. Mm. You have people working with you every day that are experiencing life, and <clears throat> they, they, like, they expect to be mentored and helped along the way. And this really, when you know second and third generation families mm-hmm. that you've been working with, even in customers, there are customers we have known for 30 years. We know their kids, we know their grandkids, and it's all about relationships. People ask me all the time, what is the chef's garden? Mm-hmm. It's the diversity of the plant species that we grow. It's the uniqueness in how we do agriculture in regenerative agriculture. And I'd love to ask you about that, yeah. And it's relationships. Mm. And those relationships are internal amongst our team, external with customers, and even with vendors. We want to develop win-win relationships at every level of relationship in the business. Um, And that's really, those are the relationships that last. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's really what makes this farm special. Um, now, you, the second point you talked about there was regenerative agriculture. Sure. Um, can you explain to our listener what exactly is that and why have you guys embraced it? Sure. Uh, very interesting background story. A lot of this ties back to my father or our father. 
my dad sent me to a soils course taught by a veterinarian in Minneapolis in December, about 17, 20 years ago now. Now there's a lot of things wrong with that. <laughs> Nobody goes to Minneapolis in December on purpose. <clears throat> but it was a three-day soils course taught by a veterinarian. The guy was, his name was Dr. Dan Scow, and he studied under a soil scientist by the name of Kerry Reams. Their concept was um, that Kerry Reams was actually jailed three times for practicing medicine without a license. Mm -hmm. And all he was doing was measuring the pH and the electrical conductivity of blood and urine and then telling people what they should eat less of and what they should eat more of. And they felt better by following his directives. Yeah. So consequently, he was obviously practicing medicine without a license. Okay. It really was, back then, that was in the late 60s, early 70s, where food as medicine was really fringe. Uh, it was just really looked down upon by the medical community. We've come a long, long way. We have a very similar relationship in the agricultural community, where the university specialists have looked down on regenerative farmers, ecological farmers, organic farmers, who want to better understand natural processes and lever those, leverage those natural processes to help plants become more healthy and then to become more nutrient dense and, and, and everything evolves in the positive direction. Um, to a point now <clears throat> where those same university researchers are asking to come out and do research on our farm, which is, um, we, we welcome them with open arms because we'd like to have the university researcher scientist evaluate what we've been seeing anecdotally for 20 years now. Uh, we know it works uh, and yields wonderful results. We want them to understand that so more folks can utilize these principles. This is not something we want to keep a secret. Um, healthy soils producing healthy plants, producing healthy people, and a healthy environment is something that we all want desperately. Mm -hmm. um, we've more gone than, the more wrong than more than want. We need it. Oh, we yeah. We can't survive without it. Yeah. Can't survive without it. Yeah. So with the regenerative agriculture, mm -hmm. I would I would love it if you could explain a little bit more about the like the cover crops, the rotation, sure. and um, is it organic? Is it conventional? Or it has nothing to do with either one of those? It really uh, is not necessarily tied to the labeling on the box. Um, there are some purest organic farmers who understand regenerative farming much better than I do. Mm -hmm. I've learned from them. We've learned from each other. The organic label is about, if you read the National Organic Pro Program of the USDA, it's a list of do's and don'ts. Here are things that you can do and things that you can't do, and you can put this organic label on the box that you're selling. What we have heard consumers ask for repeatedly for several years now is fresh produce that looks good, tastes good, is good for me, and is clean. There's nothing in it that will hurt me or my family. There's nothing in the National Organic Program that talks about the results of the system. It's all a systems-based approach. You can do this, you can't do this, you can use this, you can't use this. There are some agricultural amendments that are forbidden by the organic standards that we in fact use. There are some uh, organic amendments that are allowed that I would never use because they're full of heavy metals which transfer right into the plant. And there's a lot of research now on heavy metals and Alzheimer's and several other health maladies yeah. relating to that. Doesn't sound like a great idea to me. Does the food look good, taste good, and is it clean? We test our food for microbiological contamination and food safety. We also test for residue. If I'm going to use a specific chemistry, I'm going to test for that to make sure it doesn't end up in the plant. Yeah. We use very, very little at very low rate. It's more about the results of the process and the, the resulting quality of the food. There's nothing in the organic program that talks about food quality. Mm 
that's disappointing to us. Yeah. And, you know, we've been at this for a long time. We've learned a lot along the way from a lot of people. We're still learning every single day. Um, never say never. But I'm, there's, I can find just as many studies that say conventionally produced produce is better for you than organic yeah. as I can organic studies that say it's better yeah. than you, for you than conventional. We tend not to get hung up on that argument and look at the results of our process so that we're growing clean food that tastes good and is dense from a nutrient standpoint. Yep. Um, we were talking earlier today um, about... <clears throat> The, the latest thing that you guys are more excited about than anything that you've discovered mm -hmm. just in the last it's last month. Sure. What is that? Well, you turned us on to this actually, uh, and that is the nitrate nitrogen content in the leafy greens. From an agricultural standpoint, we were always taught at the university level that having too high a nitrate nitrogen level in fresh greens was a very bad thing that it diluted the plant sap and was, became an attractant to insects, that you would get an influx of aphids, for example. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants aphids in their food. Yep. What we've seen through our research now is that we can drive that number up higher. We didn't understand the importance of it and the body's ability to convert nitrate nitrogen to nitric oxide mm -hmm. and the resulting benefit to humans from that. You guys turned us on to that, and then we've really jumped wholeheartedly into that to try and figure out how do we manage that in the plant to give you what you're looking for. Your father's research is literally groundbreaking, mm -hmm. and the similarities are quite striking to us in that as ostracized and looked down upon as we were in the agricultural community for doing the things we did, your dad experienced the exact same thing. So we have that in common. Um, I think both of our fathers were well ahead of their time. Mm -hmm. And I long for the day that people sit in back and shake their head and say, those are two pretty smart guys. Yeah. They were really ahead of their time. And um, I think both of them would be very happy to know that we have found each other and we're helping each other mm -hmm. and we're learning from each other because both of them were such um, proponents of education. Yeah. Yeah. We're really excited about it. We're really excited to learn new things because at the end of the day, when your life's work can help people, what more do you want? Yeah. What, what were, were some of the ways that you have um, learned with the green leafies in particular to get the maximum amount of, um, of, of nitrates? Sure. Uh, is it to consume them raw, cooked? Uh, what have you discovered? So what our early research is showing, certainly there are varietal differences, there are seasonality differences. The nitrate nitrogen uptake into leafy greens is determined by temperature, mm. humidity, CO2, and light level. And so obviously you can understand the temperature and light differentiations between seasons, but also on indoor growing in greenhouses where we can better manage. Greenhouse growing is called controlled environment agriculture because you have the ability to control the environment to a better degree than you can outdoors. And can I stop you for a sec? How many acres of controlled uh, agriculture do you have here? In, in our operation, we have about 400 acres of outdoor production, only about a fourth of that in vegetables in any one year, the balance in multi-species cover crops mm -hmm. for sheet composting and soil building, mm -hmm. about 15 acres of covered production of some form or fashion that allows us to produce in this climate on a year-round basis. Our customer base asks for our quality of product 12 months of the year. The nitrate nitrogen then understanding the physical mechanical uptake of that being affected by light, temperature, humidity, we, can, we are learning how to pick the varieties that have the highest um, rates of nitrate nitrogen, how we encourage that uptake 
into the plant. Mm. And what we've learned is that eating a particular part of the plant, the petiole of the plant, a young tender, yeah. the, the young growing shoot of the plant has the highest percentage of nitrates in them mm. and uncooked is best. Cooking on average from all of the tests that we've undertaken so far show that uh, boiling for five to six minutes actually reduces that nitrate content yep. by 70 to 80 percent. Wow. So young tender plants yeah. that don't need to be cooked. If you think about what we've used for a long time, it's older, more mature plants. And you have to cook it to make it palatable yep. and to make it edible. With these young, tender shoots of plants, yeah. the pick the absolute part of the plant that has the highest concentration of the nitrates mm -hmm. and consume it as soon after harvest as possible mm -hmm. without cooking. It seems to tend, or it tends to yield the greatest results. And how typically, how long can you get it to a customer's doorstep um, after being picked? As a general rule, 24 to 48 hours. We're going to harvest to order, wash it, pack it, ship it, and depending on the shipping method chosen and where in the country the product is going, it can be on the doorstep of the kitchen in 24 to 48 hours. So you think hours. there's any way we could potentially come up with a, uh, a box of these young green uh, leafies for maximum uh, nitrate consumption for, for some of our customers? We would love nothing more than be able to do that, to put lettuces with greens and kales and spinaches and some of our uh, microgreens, the specific varieties, the superfood blend um, with the watercress and the kales, the chives that tend to test the highest to make a box that would be good for somebody for, for two people for a week and you get a new box every week yep. of these fresh greens. So you're always eating the youngest, most tender, yep. without having to cook. It comes on a weekly basis, comes right to the door. Most bioavailable. The, the bioavailability of these young tender plants, depending on what research you're reading, are between 10 to 40% times higher than their full-size counterparts. Mm -hmm. uh, micro broccoli versus full-size broccoli. What that means is that you have to consume less of it to get the same or higher health value out of it. Instead of eating a bushel of broccoli, you can eat four ounces of micro broccoli. And how do you know so much about this? <laughs> it's just... Well, a lot of reading, uh -huh. a lot of trial and error research. Um, you know, my dad, one of my dad's favorite sayings is, we're not really that smart but we learn from our mistakes. We just make mistakes at a faster rate than most people. Right, right. That's and good. that's how you learn. Well, and you've got a, you have a team of scientists as well. Wonderful team of folks uh, that we've assimilated here. And, um, and we have an on-farm lab yep. where we're testing for nutrient density. We're testing for nitrate, nitrate density. Uh, we're testing for antioxidants. We're testing light levels. We're trying to figure out you know, we've been working with restaurant chefs for over 30 years. And these restaurant chefs have told us over and over again, we love the product that you're sending to us. It tastes better, it lasts longer than anything else we can buy in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Very anecdotal information. And so dad decided 15 years ago, we gotta figure out what the mechanism is that's causing this. They told us over and over that their top requirements, these chefs' requirements were flavor, shelf life, flavor, aesthetics, and more flavor. Three so, flavors out of the top five. 60% <laughs> of, their, of their requirement was flavor because that's what sells in the restaurant. Mm. It's the experience and it's the flavor. Um, and so we set about trying to find out what the, were the causation effects of causing flavor. It was genetics and it was cultural practices. Biological um, activity in the soil, healthy soil cover crop, rotation, fallow, and then put good varieties in that soil, you got better color and better flavor, better shelf life. What we didn't know yeah. for the last 15 years, that there was a direct correlation to flavor and shelf life with nutrition and color. Mm. We had no idea. We didn't know what we didn't know. And now we're starting to learn that. We're learning every day. We're excited by our results. We're way out over our skis. Yeah. We know that. 
but we're learning every day and we're getting better and better at this. Um, and we've learned, we, we've had relationships with a lot of really good folks over the years who we've learned from um, that have helped us along the way. Well, how, how exciting that you're not only producing <clears throat> the most beautiful produce really on the planet, it's also got great shelf life. You've also got this nutritional uh, integrity that is almost like second to none. And then a taste that's, 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 that's out of sight. Um, that seems like the, I don't know what I just said there, the, 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 the four, the four new ones. Or the, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you guys, you guys have really done something, something really unique here. Well, I appreciate that. We're still learning every day. What we're trying to do is leverage natural processes, learn, you know, we, we, we're very fortunate and that we get to experience our faith every day mm. because we're learning about creation yeah. and we're learning how little we know. Um, and it's a wonderful experience to, to figure that out along the way mm -hmm. um, and know that we have the ability to help people along the way. That just makes it all the sweeter. Thanks for spending time with us as we got to know our friends at the Chef's Garden. Something tells me we'll be creating opportunities to collaborate with them and inviting you to join in along the way. I love that we found so much synergy during our time together, and I hope, with our help, the Chef's Garden will find a whole new flock of fans who appreciate all the time and effort and passion they have put into their farm. And speaking of direct-to-your-door convenience, be sure to visit plantstrongfoods.com to check out our current selection of breakfast cereals, granolas, and PlantStrong pizza crust kits available for home delivery. We have some brand new products coming very soon, and I can't wait for you to try them. Thank you for listening to the PlantStrong podcast. You can support the show by taking a quick minute to subscribe, rate, and review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Sharing the show with your network is another great way to help us reach as many people as possible with the great news about plants. Thank you in advance for your support. It means everything to me. Have you had your own Galileo moment that you'd like to share? What happened when you stepped into the arena and shed the beliefs that you thought to be true. I'd love to hear about it. Visit plantstrongpodcast.com to submit your story and to learn more about today's guests and sponsors. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Cobble B. Esselstyn Jr. and Ann Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.